1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is David Crowe, our banking editor. Down the line from Frankfurt, we're joined by Olaf Storbeck, our correspondent there, and from New York by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. Our guest this week is Magdalena Stockloser, who is the head of European banks research at Morgan Stanley. This week, we'll be taking a look at German banks and their prospects on the back of a couple of bearish comments. A look at Unicredit and the prospects for a stock buyback there and indeed across the sector in Europe. And finally, a look at the US, where European banks have been retrenching en masse. First, though, to that view of German banking. And we had a couple of fairly bearish statements coming out of the Bundesbank and also from Moody's warning about the outlook for German banking. We're joined now by Olaf from Frankfurt What exactly did these reports say?
2: Yes, so on the same day, Moody's issued an update of its banking system outlook, while the Bundesbank issued its financial stability outlook. The rating agency warned that profit of German banks will be squeezed even more over the next 12 to 18 months due to the low interest rate environment and also to the slowing economy. And they lowered the outlook for the German banking system from neutral to negative. While the Bundesbank is more concerned about the overall stability of the financial system, because after more than 10 years of good economic times, banks and other financial market participants are tending to underestimate the risk which are in the system and might be caught out if the situation deteriorates.
1: Okay. In a way, that's as we might expect, given the challenges that we know of facing the big two private sector banks in Germany, Deutsche and Commerz, which you and I have discussed many times, Olaf. But it was interesting. I was over in Frankfurt with you at the end of last week at a conference where we had Christian Lagarde, the new head of the ECB, as the keynote speaker. We had many of the big cheeses of German finance there and the mood was extraordinarily upbeat. Was this just a big marketing exercise, or do you think there is genuinely reason for a counter-narrative on the upbeat prospects for German finance?
2: Well, if you look at the facts, I think it's quite difficult to be overly optimistic for the prospect of the German banking system. German banks, overall, are the second least profitable in Europe. They earn just 2.4% return on equity, Only banks in Greece were worse, and the cost-income ratios are about 80%, which means German banks spend 80 cents to earn one euro of revenue, which is significantly above European peers. In most other countries, this number is closer to 60%. And the lower for longer interest rates and the negative interest rates are going to bite German banks particularly badly because they are more dependent than others on interest income. Quite a few banks have started to pass on negative interest rates, not only to corporate clients, but also to retail clients. Uh, we had one small cooperative bank last week, which even said that new retail clients will have to pay negative interest rates from the first euro if they open up an overnight savings account. All banks are also engaging in severe cost cutting. Maybe one thing which what you worth adding is that despite all the gloom, Moody's is predicting that the equity cushion of German banks and also the quality of the assets they hold on the balance sheet will remain stable and won't kind of fall off a cliff over the next 12 to 18 months. So the rating agencies are predicting a slow-burning profitability crisis rather than a sharp deterioration in fortunes of the banks within the next 12 to 18 months.
1: David, you've got a theory that actually Germany, in terms of the bearish outlook that the Bundesbank and Moody's put forward, is actually heralding a broader spread of negative sentiment about European banks as a whole.
3: Yeah, so I mean, this is the bearish case, and one should caveat it with that. And Germany, as Olaf says, is among the sickest banking markets in Europe. But the problems it has, low interest rates, high costs, are not unique. And indeed, there is a view out there among bearish investors that cost cutting is coming towards the end of its usefulness, that there's not an awful lot more that can be done. And indeed, some banks are constrained in taking the charges they need to pay the redundancy costs and so on. And so there are some that fear that if this lower for longer interest rate environment goes on for a longer period of time, or if indeed rates were to be cut further, then Moody's and others would start downgrading individual banks within the eurozone. But that is
1: the doomsday scenario, should we say. That's the severe bear case. So Magdalena, can I bring you in here because I think Morgan Stanley has turned positive on the European bank sector. So you're the alternative bull case against David's bear case.
4: Yes, I think that we have an improvement in a way in the environment in which the banks operate. And I really wanted to um, talk about three inflection points, which to me are key positives from here. The first one is the fact that we are forecasting no more deposit rate cuts. So yes, we're going to stay in this kind of lower for longer structural backdrop. And of course, the margins are still going to be challenged. But I think the fact that the uncertainty of the kind of lower bound being gone, the confidence in earnings is much higher than I think it was a couple of months ago. And I do also think that the steeper European curves should also support a re-rating. And my second inflection point is really about the GDP growth from here. We think that we are bottoming in terms of the PMI cycle.
1: The purchasing managers index.
4: And the sequential improvement in the quarterly GDP print should stabilise the credit cycle and effectively result in low provisions still. And my third point is earnings do look have bottomed. And in the third quarter, 80% of the eurozone banks have beat the lowered expectations. So to me, we, the analysts, have spent the last six months relentlessly cutting our earnings expectations for the banks, particularly for 2020. And I think we're done or we're broadly there, which kind of means that we are working with a proper earnings number. So being able to assess the valuations more properly.
1: Well, you've made a very cogent case for the bull side. I guess we need to call you both back in six months' time to see who's right and who's wrong. But you provide a neat segue, actually, to one of the other reasons why, in kind of practical terms, we might think about a bull case, if you like, because turning to our second item for the day we're going to have a big investor day at Unicredit next week, which I'm sure next week's podcast will reflect on. But a lot of eyes are on Unicredit because of the symbolism around what they decide on a potential share buyback and what that could unleash in terms of other buybacks across the sector. I know, David, you've got your eyes on this quite closely. What chances do you think there are of that and then of a snowballing effect?
3: Well, Jean-Pierre Mustier, the CEO of Unicredit, has not been shy about signaling the fact that he wants to do a buyback. He was out on the third quarter investor call saying so. I think given all of the public pronouncements, it would be very difficult for him now if he didn't signal some sort of at least pathway towards that buyback when he unveils this big strategic plan next week.
1: And Magdalena, it's pretty... Broadly significant as well, not just for Italy's biggest bank, but the sector as a whole.
4: Yes, I have to say, I agree with David from the perspective of probabilities. But for me, the real significance of a large liquid eurozone bank like Unicredit being able to buy back shares is the final approval on the regulatory side that would signal the end to the kind of balance sheet cleanup, balance sheet rehabilitation. So that's important to me. And I think that as a signal to the sector's observers, it's going to be positive because really the banks, as we speak, yield about 6% from the perspective of dividend yields. But share buybacks provide this additional impact from the perspective of earnings per share and better returns. And I do believe that if we get the approval in Unicredits case, a few more large European banks could follow.
1: Yes, and that in turn, could be a significant re-rating impetus, I guess, i.e. the market could start believing in banks going forward. We could get a jump in share prices.
4: I believe that, yes.
1: Very interesting. Let's take our third perspective on European banking now, move to the US where Laura has been delving through the numbers of European banks' operations in the US, where there's been a major retrenchment in terms of the assets held in European banks' so-called intermediate holding companies. So, Laura, you've been crunching the numbers and I think $280 billion has been pulled out of these so-called IHCs in recent times. Tell us what's been going on.
5: So what we did was it's now three years on since European banks were forced to report data around their intermediate holding company. These are the holding companies that they had to set up in the U.S. to ensure that their U.S. activities could be safely resolved in the event of them running into trouble. So three years ago, they began publishing very detailed filings around these IHCs. And what we looked at was how they have developed, because there was a lot of concern when the rules were brought in. But these IHCs, because they had to be independently capitalized, that they'd make it very expensive for the European banks to do business in the US because they had quite a big capital charge. So we looked at what's happened. And the main thing that we saw is that banks have reduced their activities in the IHCs significantly over the period. So we looked at four banks who have the biggest operations on Wall Street because that's the area that's really been harder to take by the capital charges. So we looked at Barclays, Deutsche Bank, UBS, and Credit Suisse. What we found was across the pack. The assets in their IHCs over that three-year period went down by about $280 billion.
1: And part of the reduction was with the aim of minimising the capital demands that would have been placed on them. The more assets that are in these things, the higher the capital charges. Have they been able to dodge capital requirements effectively, therefore?
5: So as you would expect, the banks are very sensitive on the point of dodging capital requirements and even like regulatory arbitrage really gets their back up. I mean, what we can say definitively is that if the banks had not moved certain assets from their IHC to their branches, they would hold more capital in the US at this point. There's one bank I'm aware of that was told clearly by the Fed. If you don't move out these assets, you will need to hold more capital. So that's certainly true. The one thing to bear in mind is that stuff held in the branches doesn't require capital in the US. It does still require capital at group level.
1: Yes, because they're branches of subsidiary operations or parent companies elsewhere in the world.
5: Yeah. So it's not like these activities haven't got any capital behind them, but it is a lower amount of capital. So basically, if you're holding them at group, you can pretty much say that that does mean you're holding less capital against them than you would have been if you were holding in the IHC. And that is part of the reason banks have done these moves. So the banks don't like to call it arbitrage, they prefer optimization. I think it's a matter of semantics to an extent. I mean, if you're trying to optimise your balance sheet for capital purposes, that is a legitimate and logical thing for them to do. But it does raise questions for the regulators about what was the intent of these proposals around the IHCs? And did they expect such a large reduction in assets these IHCs? Now, it's also worth pointing out that banks do need to go to the Fed and their other regulators if they choose to move activity from IHC to other entities. So, It's not like they can just do this off their own bat, and like there's no oversight of this at all. There is a regulatory process and everything that's done has been approved.
1: But I suppose, as you said, underlying all of this, even if there has been some kind of shuttling of assets around different U.S. entities, the kind of structural theme, if you like, the ongoing theme is that European banks are retrenching from the U.S. And a lot of these assets will either have been disposed of altogether or shifted to other parts of groups operations outside the U.S.
5: Yeah, I think that's certainly true. And it isn't hard to see why. And the other part of the story is that while the assets in these IHCs, they reduced by more than 34% over the period we looked at, the amount of capital in the IHCs actually increased by almost 12%. So what you see there is, in very basic terms, assets down by loads, capital up by a bit. And that just makes it very challenging for banks to make a return on equity here. Now, banks, don't always look at the standalone return on equity of their regional businesses. But if you do have a, a situation where the US is taking up a lot of equity and hasn't got the same assets, therefore isn't making the same income, that certainly makes the US a less economically viable market for the banks. And this just makes the US an obvious candidate if you're going to be cutting some of these activities. And they're very capital heavy in the US, and they're maybe less capital heavy in some other markets. Certainly, this would argue for cuts in the U.S. rather than other markets, all things being
1: equal. Absolutely. Well, thanks for explaining all of that, Laura. We'll speak to you again soon. That's all for this week. Thank you very much to David, Olaf and Laura and our guest Magdalena Stogloza from Morgan Stanley. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com. banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.